Have you ever had to be the messenger of harsh news? Maybe you had to tell someone you know that they had some relational strife with someone else who had shared it with you, or maybe you had to tell one of your children that their pet had passed away, or maybe you've had to share that there's an illness that's going on in somebody's life that the doctors told you the news of. Or The reason why it's difficult for us to share a harsh message is because it's, it's hard news for people to hear. It's bad news. Nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news, but... One good thing in, in sharing bad news is, for us usually, when we share bad news with people, the meaning is clear, right? When we say, this pet has passed away, or this person has this illness, or there's relational strife going on, it, people understand it clearly, right? They understand what you're saying. Imagine being the bearer of the news and not knowing whether the person listening to you is going to actually understand what you're telling them. That's the problem that we see Jesus running into here. And really, as we have the same message that Jesus has, we have the same problem. Where we have bad news that ultimately points to good news, right? The gospel but it's news that may not be understood by the people that we're sharing it with. So much to the point that Jesus, as he shares the news this morning, it's called harsh. The people actually say, this is a harsh saying from you, Jesus. But we know also that they don't get it because there's also a spiritual element to the message that Jesus is sharing, and they're not really thinking on a spiritual plane. So what we're going to see this morning is Jesus explain this harsh, harsh message. That's going to be a hard one to say back and forth. I should have thought through that, right? Harsh message, but then we're going to see how people respond to it. Remember, as we're going through John chapter 6, Jesus is still talking to the crowd that he fed. Right At the beginning of the chapter, he fed the 5,000. Right? We saw that on their way over to the other side, Jesus walks on the water, and then the next day the crowd comes searching for him, and Jesus has now entered into this conversation with them, and it's still going on. He's been continually explaining to them, I am the bread of life, right? You're chasing a food that perishes, I'm the food that endures. I am food that feeds your soul more than your stomach. But their unbelief continues. They continue to grumble, they continue to dispute. Jesus explains the reason for their unbelief. We saw that the last couple weeks. Jesus is saying, right, the Father hasn't taught you. The Father hasn't drawn you to me. That's why you're not coming and believing. So there's this call to come and believe, but also this element of, well, God must not be working in you at this moment. That's why you're not believing. We reach the end of the discussion today. By the end of John chapter 6, it's over. We move on to a new story in chapter 7. But we see Jesus go one step further with his message to the point that it is called harsh. So this morning we're going to look at three parts of it. What is the harsh message? What are the responses of the people to that message? And then as a result, what do we as believers now do with that message? Plain and simple. What's the message? What are the responses? What do we do with it? We're going to start in John chapter 6 in verse 48. Pick up from last week a little bit says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that, no, so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So kind of a long passage there, but let's jump into it. It's helpful for us to begin by looking at what the content of Jesus' message was. So what is the harsh message? There's a couple elements I think we need to pull out of this. The first thing we find is it's a serious message. Jesus says it's a matter of life and death. Right? He's not saying that this is some suggested way for you to live, if it sounds good to you, but he's clear that this is an eternal message. First, he contrasts it with the manna in the wilderness. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And then also in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. So here, we obviously we hear, well, they ate the manna and they died. Jesus is thinking physical death, Right? Likely, yes. There may be a spiritual aspect to it, too. We don't really know how many of those in the wilderness who ate the manna, how many of them were truly people of faith. There was a whole lot of mumbling and grumbling that went on as they walked in the wilderness. Notice a common word that shows up in this chapter is that the Jewish people were grumbling as well. Right? So there is maybe an element where there was maybe quite a few people in that wilderness group eating the manna that weren't truly of faith either, but clearly Jesus has a physical aspect in mind, but there's also an implication here that even if he's talking about death in a physical way, when he starts to begin to switch over to his message, there's a spiritual component to it, right? Look at verse 53. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Is Jesus telling them they physically have no life in them? Well, surely not. Right? So now we see as Jesus switches from the manna to the current situation, he's now switching from a physical death to now a spiritual life and death sort of message. Right? And if we go even further, verse 50 says a similar thing. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Is Jesus telling these people that if they participate in him, if they trust in him, if they partake in him, that he's going to make sure that they never physically die? Is that what he's telling them? Certainly not. Because look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You don't need to be raised up unless you're physically dead already. So Jesus is saying you still will physically die. His message is on a whole different plane than what they're thinking. His message is a spiritual message. Right? He is saying, when he says, I am the bread of life, he's not saying, if you eat me, you will never physically die. He's saying, I satisfy your soul. But there are implications for the future as well. Right? Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So there is this sense of even if physical death does come upon everyone, this life that Jesus is offering is one that continues into all eternity into the future. So we have to be able to hold the tension of these two time frames, right? That Jesus is offering life now, but it's also a life that continues forever. Nonetheless, Jesus is certainly saying this is a serious message, It's a matter of death or life. And there's no life to be had apart from Jesus. That's the clear claim he's making. Can we say that this is also a harsh message in our world today? Thousands of years later, that talking about matters of eternal life and death is a harsh message for people to hear? In the past decades, we've seen an extreme drop in the number of people that consider themselves Christians. But you know what numbers stayed the same? The number of people who think they're going to heaven. So there's this element of, yes, I think I have that life later, but I don't need it now. I don't need to change anything now. I don't need to trust in Jesus now. I can live however I want, and then I'm still going to have that later life. And to even say that they could remotely possibly be wrong is a harsh or arrogant claim for you to make. To say, no, your eternal life is based on what, how you respond to life now. So it's a serious message. It's also a sacrificial message. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice here, if life is not available to the world until Jesus gives his flesh, what does that mean is true of the world before Jesus gives his flesh? That they're dead. 
right? The world is dead. The only way for the world to have life is for Jesus to give his flesh. This is an absolutely unheard of message, right? That it requires a sacrifice of Jesus, of someone's flesh to be saved. This is the one point in the passage where we can take the word flesh and actually have some literal application to it. Right? Because what we find is if you fast forward later in Jesus' ministry, what happens? He does give his flesh for the life of the world. Jesus' flesh is literally beaten. His blood literally poured out as he hangs on the cross and takes the wrath for our sin. But this is harsh for the crowd to hear. Because the crowd has no concept at this point of the cross. There's no thought of, this is a crucifixion type of message. But it's true. This is the only way for anyone to have true life. Is this harsh in our culture as well? To say that the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago is the only way for people to have true life? It's harsh on two levels. First, it's harsh on the level that we're telling people you need to be saved. Right? That you are dead apart from Jesus, apart from his death. And second, it's harsh because we're telling people you need saved and you can't save yourself. It's only based upon Jesus' flesh that you can be saved. You need a substitute to be sacrificed on your behalf. Our world, our culture loves the idea of, I can do it myself. I, I can work my way there. And everything, everything about Jesus' message says, you have no chance if you try to do it on your own. It's all based on his flesh, his death and resurrection. So it's a message of sacrifice. It's also a message of submission, where Jesus tells them, you must feed on my flesh and drink my blood. Now, we probably hear these terms and think some similar things that they did, right? Just, just read verses 53 through 56 with me. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We hear that, and we probably have some thoughts similar to what the Jewish people are asking, right? Because they're asking, how does this guy give us his flesh to eat? Right? This is cannibalism. Why in the world would Jesus be promoting this? But if you look in the context, there's all sorts of connections that I think Jesus is just taking this a step further with some language when really all he's saying is this is in connection back to the invitation of come and believe. To eat and drink is to come and believe. Because notice, verse 55, what's it say? For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Have we heard something similar to this before? Look back at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Right? So now we see this link between true food, right? True drink to true bread, right? So obviously there's a connection there. And what ultimately ends up 
does Jesus say later on about that true bread? He says, you must come to me and believe in me because I am the bread. Right? So there's this invitation to come and believe with the true bread. should think the same thing with the true food and the true drink. But also notice that this flesh and blood language is sandwiched by something. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But then jump to verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You notice what the flesh and the blood is sandwiched by? Talk of bread. Which has been this ongoing theme that's been going on in all of chapter 6, all the way tracing back to their feeding of the 5,000. Right, all the way back to the miracle, it's been about bread. So I think we can say that Jesus is doing what he's already been doing the whole time in the, the Gospel of John. Remember when he told the people, if you not, uh, I will in three days raise this temple up again? Was he talking about the literal temple? No, it was a physical marker to point to a spiritual reality. So he did the same thing with the woman at the well, right? He said, drink this living water. Did Jesus have water literally to give her? No, it was a physical marker to point to a spiritual reality. So I think Jesus is doing the same thing when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's a physical marker pointing to a spiritual reality of come and believe. But I do think Jesus uses this language for a reason. I don't think Jesus is just restating what he's already said just to restate it. I think he's, he is taking it a step further to say something specifically about it. And I think we find it in verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So, so far, we've seen in all of John that the Son is working in relationship with the Father. Right? That the Son, in a sense, is submitting himself to the Father's work. Jesus has said, everything I do is the Father's work. I'm not doing anything of my own will, but only for the Father's will. And now there's this element of Jesus is saying, I have life because of the Father. Right? There's this kind of almost like back and forth kind of leaning sort of, almost dependence, reliance upon, right? Not to say Jesus isn't God or the Son of God, not to say that at all, but to say that in Jesus' earthly life, his earthly ministry, there's this sense of he's, he's, everything he does is dependent upon what the Father wants him to be doing. And then he says, whoever feeds on me, they have life because of me. So Jesus is now making this comparison that in the same way Jesus has life because of the Father is the same way that we have life because of Jesus. And when you introduce the food language, right, feeding on flesh and drinking blood, we kind of can see this picture of dependency show up a little more. Right? All of us can imagine we're all dependent on food to sustain us. Right? If you, or if you take, for example, children. Right? I have kids who, if, they, if I did not, feed, me or Lydia did not feed them, they would die. Literally. They are completely dependent upon us to give them food. And then Jesus comes along and says, Whoever would come to me like one of these children, 
You notice the dependence factor there. So I think what Jesus is painting here is he's saying that we have to be completely dependent on him for our life. For him to be the one who satisfies us as we feed on him and drink him. And it's not supposed to be just a one-time event where I'm going to come at one point in my life and say, okay, I completely rely upon Jesus for my salvation, and that's it. It's done. It's over. Look at verse 56. What does he say? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The word abide can also be translated remains. So it's not just a, you depend on me for salvation now, for life now, but you have to continue to live this life of dependence forever. You abide in this life. You remain in your dependence on me. And of course, this is a harsh message in the world that we live in. Our world teaches us what? Independence. Our world teaches us that you can do it all on your own. But to tell someone you're dead without Jesus, you need to be dependent on him now for salvation and the rest of your life you need to depend on him, that's nuts. We live in a world that says, I can't do it on my own? You really think I'm bad by myself? You're saying I have to submit to Jesus and to him alone for the rest of my life. But that's exactly the message of what Jesus is saying here. So we have to ask ourselves the question, first, do we believe this harsh message? Are you completely dependent, completely feeding on Jesus as you live your life? When your boss gives a promotion to a lazy person, but who has some sort of interconnection to the corporate ladder, do you respond to that situation based on dependence on Jesus? When your spouse says, there's too much strife in our relationship, that's enough, I'm done, do you run and feed on Jesus? Or maybe you're just bombarded with the busyness of life. Do you live your life as if abiding in Jesus is your only chance to truly live? If true life is found only in Jesus, you have nowhere else to go. So ask the question, are you going to him? That's one response. That's the response of belief. And that's where we're going to get to next is the two responses. We're going to contrast the two responses of unbelief and belief that show up. I've separated it into three categories. Beliefs, affections, and commitments. Now you could call this the head, heart, and the hands as well if you wanted to say something like that. But first we see beliefs. The crowd wants to box in God the Father while those who believe say that they know Jesus is the Holy One of God. right? The crowd thinks they understand God. They're Jewish people, after all. They think they understand who God the Father is. But they have a system set in place that God the Father must fit into. But notice what when Jesus says this. He busts open their box. Look at verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is telling them, you don't really know the Father. It hasn't been granted for you to come yet. You don't know what you're talking about. God doesn't fit into your little box system. But yet, true disciples respond, verse 69. 
we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples see Jesus and they say, you are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. So, in the midst of this message, you have people reject it because it doesn't fit into their box, or you have people believe it because they trust in the words of Jesus and who Jesus says he is. You also have, within the beliefs category, you have people who are deaf to Jesus' words, and you have people who hear Jesus' words as life. Look at verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Literally translated, says, who is able to hear this message? They assume nobody can hear it and understand it because it's, it's falling on their deaf ears. But notice what Peter says in verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. So we have people who are deaf to the message. Those living in unbelief say, who could hear this message and actually believe it? And then you have true belief saying, this is true. I believe Jesus' words as life. So that's beliefs. You then go, we move on to affections, or you could call these emotions or desires. You see, those living in unbelief are offended by the message. Verse 61. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? They're grumbling. They're frustrated. They're offended because now all of a sudden Jesus is talking about stuff that doesn't fit into their box. But the posture of Peter and the other true disciples is that they're willing to accept it. They, they come with humility. They say, we're going to lower ourselves and submit to what Jesus is saying. So in the midst of this harsh message, you have unbelief growing angry, while faith says, I'm going to be humble and trust what Jesus is saying. You also have a love for self versus a desire for the Spirit. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus tells them, you can't figure this out on your own flesh. But that's exactly what they're trying to do. Think about it. Up until this point, what have they been desiring? The flesh. They've been desiring physical bread. They want a physical king who's going to set up an earthly kingdom for them. They have a love for their selfish desires, and they're interpreting Jesus only in physical, earthly categories. That's why they're so confused by this flesh and blood language. But Jesus is clear, right? That first part of verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. There's a sense where we need the Spirit. And then Jesus goes on to say, my words are Spirit. So true faith doesn't trust only in ourselves, and our physical desires, but true faith desires the Spirit, understands that the Spirit is the only way for life, to truly know Jesus. And then we move on to commitments. Unbelief walks away. Verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
a large portion of these people, maybe all these people except the 12, walk away because they're so committed to their box. They're committed to their own way. And they say, you want us to change what we believe and what we desire? That's madness. But true faith, look at Peter in verse 68, says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? There isn't another place in the world I could want to be except with you. Real change has taken place. They believe hope is found in nowhere else but with Jesus. So in response to this message, you have unbelief turns away while faith says, I'm going to stake my life on this. I have nowhere else that I'm going to chase. But there's one more element here. Because even after the thousands walk away, we're left with 12 And we find a note here at the end about one of those twelve. John ends the passage with an interesting note about Judas. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus makes a clear note here that those living in unbelief can still stick around and disguise themselves as belief. Now, Jesus knows what's truly going on here. That's why he says this. But what Jesus is essentially saying is, your mere presence is not assurance. Judas' commitment is still to himself, but he disguises it as belief for a while. But remember, true faith, verse 56 tells us, abides in Jesus, remains in Jesus, and Jesus remains in those who believe. When things get hard, when Judas is offered money to betray Jesus, Judas takes the money and thus displays that he was never abiding in Jesus, that he never truly believed in Jesus. Because those truly committed to Jesus remain with Jesus, abide in Jesus. They will stick with Jesus. Church, we've seen this in the last year, haven't we? Now, I know there's been health things and quarantines, and I'm not... Let's put all those off to the side. Let's deal with the reality, though, that churches across the nation are dealing with the fact that the United States, since the hit of COVID... 50% of church attendance is down. Now, I understand, like I said, we're going to put off to the side all the medical possible reasons. We know 50% of it is not medical. Because now here we are on the back end, hopefully, and it's still down 50%. This shows true commitment, right? And the warning is even further than that, right? Because notice what Jesus is warning here with Judas. He's saying... Just because you've made an appearance, just because you're present, doesn't mean you're truly abiding. So that means you can even show up and be present to Sunday worship or to Bible studies or whatever, and that still doesn't prove that you're truly abiding in Jesus. Church, this would never fly in any other part of our lives, would it? It would never apply if you just said, well, I'm present at my job, or... I am present at sports practice, but I'm not participating. 
or I'm physically present in my marriage, but I'm not working on it, or I'm physically present at school, but I'm not doing my work. Mere presence proves very little. So why in the world would we think on a spiritual level, which should be more important than an earthly level, that Jesus would be content with even less? So ask yourself the question, when we see these two groups contrasted, which one do you identify yourself with better? The unbelief? Those who say, well, if it doesn't fit my box, I'm not going to believe it. Or if it makes me feel guilty, I don't like it. Or I love my life too much to give it up for this, this sake. I'm going to pretty much leave this Jesus stuff alone unless I feel like I really might need it at some point. Or do you find yourself in true faith saying, I know Jesus. I believe his words are life. I'm going to submit myself to them. I know I need the spirit. I'm going to chase nothing else because I have nowhere else to go. And I'm going to remain with Jesus no matter what. I think it's, there's a reason why the healthiest churches and the fastest growing churches happen in parts of the world where people are being killed for being part of the church. Because it shows the authenticity of faith. The harsh reality of what this commitment really means is a daily risk. So, which group do you identify with? And now we have this last question of, if I truly believe this harsh message, what am I going to do with it? What do I do with this message? Which leads us to our last point, which is Jesus wants us to engage unbelief. Think about this. Everything that's happened in chapter 6 has been done on purpose by Jesus, knowing what the end results would be. Jesus feeds them, knowing they'll follow him the next day. He calls out their unbelief, explains why they have unbelief, and then uses this flesh and blood language, knowing thousands are going to walk away. Why? If Jesus knows these people aren't going to believe, why would he engage their unbelief? I think it's because by the time we get to the end, Jesus is now talking with his disciples. He's teaching them something. Because one day, his disciples are going to have this same message And they're going to have to take it out to an unbelieving world, but they're not going to know what the results are going to be. Only Jesus knows when people are going to walk away. The disciples don't know that. In fact, that is pretty much the rest of the New Testament, isn't it? It's believers taking the message to an unbelieving world and then finding out what happens when your belief collides with the world's unbelief and how to handle those situations. So I think also John includes this for us. Jesus and John want us to learn something from this. So what was it that Jesus was teaching? First of all, I think, plain and simple, we have to take this. Jesus wants his disciples and us to engage the unbelief around us. Jesus chose to have this conversation knowing the results. How much more does he want his disciples and us to engage the unbelief around us when we don't know what the results are going to be? Jesus wants us to engage the world around us that's living in unbelief. And we have all sorts of unbelieving people around us. So why don't we? Why don't we engage the unbelief? Because often Christians are known for pretty much failing at many times to share this message with the people around them. 
And we have all sorts of excuses, right? Well, my work would frown upon me sharing this with people. Well, what about sharing it with someone outside of work? What about getting lunch with that person? What about having that person over for a meal? Or you say, well, that person would make fun of me for doing it. Guess what? Jesus said they would. There's a reason why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or he says, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil things against you on his account. He tells them, when they're persecuting you, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Or we say, well, they would just say no anyway to Jesus. You know that? Because I'm pretty sure the whole point right here is that we and the disciples don't know the results. Jesus is the only one. And even if they were going to say no anyway, did that stop anybody in the New Testament from sharing? There's a whole lot of language in the New Testament about sowing seeds that one day come to fruition. Or you might say, well, I don't know what to say. Do you know enough of the gospel for you to believe it? Then you know enough. Let's be honest, church. There is no, zero, biblical reasons for us to not share the gospel with people. The only reasons we can come up with are ones that really surround our own comfort levels. And in reality... What many churches are doing by, ref- by living in their comfort levels and not engaging the unbelief is we're killing our churches. Churches don't grow by stealing sheep from other churches. Churches grow because souls are being saved in the community around them. Souls only get saved by this message, this gospel being shared with those people who don't believe. And let's be honest, church, if we look around our community, we have a community that's dying to hear where true life can be found. There's a variety of issues, but we have tons of people addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, dealing with abuse situations in the home. They all need to know where true life can be found. And Jesus wants us to engage that unbelief. Two more things Jesus teaches us real quick. Jesus teaches us to redefine success. Jesus shows us that numbers are not the indicator of success. Look at verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve. Did you hear that? Many walked away. Jesus is left talking to the twelve. Jesus just shrunk his ministry from thousands to 12, and really 11, if you don't include Judas. If he was a pastor, he'd be fired immediately. You don't shrink a church of thousands down to 11. You just don't do that. That's not how ministry works. Now, church, I'm not saying we should seek to isolate ourselves. I'm not saying that we need to say, well, the smaller we are, the more holy we are. I'm not saying that. But what I mean here is Jesus redefines success, saying, if you share the gospel with 200 people and only one person believes, you didn't fail. Jesus wasn't phased one bit by thousands walking away. He knew it was going to happen. In fact, I would say he elevated his language to the flesh and blood language to finally get to the point where he knew they were going to walk away. 
And this is the theme of the New Testament and church history. I was reading a book for one of my classes, and it's amazing to hear that there's one missionary who goes in history, and he goes, and in two years, there's 200,000 believers in these churches. And there's one missionary who goes, and in 10 years, he has 10 people. Neither one is considered more faithful than the other. Right? Church, I'm saying in five years, if we were sharing the gospel like we should be, we could, in five years, we could have 200 people get saved, or in 10 years, we could see 20 people get saved. It doesn't matter. The numbers aren't the indicator of success. What we call success is, we ask ourselves, did we relentlessly try to engage the unbelief around us with the gospel? So Jesus redefines success, and then last, Jesus instills confidence. As Jesus walks through this conversation, he describes where our confidence lies. The reason why he doesn't fail when these thousands walk away is because his confidence is not in the numbers. Instead, he ties his confidence, and you find it. All three members of the Trinity are listed in Jesus' places of confidence here. First, he has confidence in God the Father. Verse 65, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus looks at the unbelief around and says, the Father must not be granting them belief yet. We must have the same mentality. If we share the gospel with 100 people and 99 say no to it and walk away, we have to trust that the Father will grant belief when it's his time to grant belief. Now, don't negate the fact that he could grant it later from the seed that you have planted either. But also we have confidence not just in God the Father, we have confidence in Jesus the Son. In two parts of Jesus. First, confidence in the cross. Verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' confidence rests in the message of the cross. So much to the point that we see Paul say the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just listen. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul's entire message to the church. So we have confidence in the cross, but we also have confidence in Jesus' own words. Verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then we see Peter reiterate this, verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. We can be confident when we're engaging unbelief around us, when our words match Jesus' words. If we can be sure that we're, we're saying the same words Jesus said, then we can be confident because his words are life. And then last, the third member of the Trinity, we're confident in the Spirit's work. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. In connection with the Father granting that people come to Jesus, it is also the Spirit who works in hearts to draw people to Jesus. Jesus is saying, in a sense, since these these people are walking away, the Spirit hasn't given these people life yet. You can rest assured, church, that as you're engaging the unbelief around you, if the Spirit is working in people's hearts, if the Spirit is giving people life, people will believe the message. As you engage the unbelief around you, your confidence doesn't lie in your words, but it lies in all three persons of the Trinity. So brothers and sisters, you're left with the question, what are you going to do? You have a harsh message. A message of life and death. A message that said people's hope is only in the cross. 
And a message that says you must be completely dependent on Jesus now and forevermore. And there's two possible responses. Unbelief that says I want to keep my own way of doing things. And faith that says I'm willing to give it all up for a new way. And you have a world around you that's living in unbelief. Will you engage this world with confidence? Knowing all three members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, are working. You can have confidence to go out and tell the rest of the world, this unbelieving world, that they have nowhere else to go. That there is nowhere else where you can find true life, but in the one who is the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray.